Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. I am excited because today's guest is the lovely Miss Allison Ware, MSCCC, SLP, CLC, who's a pediatric speech language pathologist based out of Austin, Texas. 
And one of the things I'm really excited about is that Aaron and I first met Allison two years ago, I think. I think it was two, maybe three years ago. And it has been profound to watch her go through being a new clinician and a CF to finding her muchness in our field that can be not so user-friendly. And here she is, and she has created a passion project and is already volunteering at state and national levels within the scope of pediatric feeding and swallowing. And I know Erin and I had Allison on a couple of years ago, but today we get to highlight the joy and the evidence that she is bringing and impacting and how she's done that in lives in Texas. And it's a direct outgrowth from the episode that we had last month, give or take maybe two months, with Kyla Romeo, who's Director of Strategic Initiatives for Feeding Matters and a amazing NICU OT who actually has all of her fancy specialty certifications. But here we are. And it's just, I know it is awesome to watch young clinicians just go and be leaders. And Allison, that's you. So hi, welcome back. (laughs) Thank you for that very sweet introduction. I'm so happy to be here and talk about this project that I am oh so passionate about and hopefully inspire some others. Yes. So hi. And Erin, how you doing, lady? I'm good. I worked out this morning. I went to a coffee shop. I've been productive. It's good. Ah, I mean, I dodged Nerf gun bullets. So to be fair, we did do a workout and then there was Nerf gun bullet dodging. So (laughs) okay. Now, Allison, when we first met you, you were Allison Smith. And I got to be honest, I keep wanting to go back to Smith. So it's been a minute. So update us all. How are you? How did you become a speech pathologist? Um, How did you land in Austin? Yeah, well, that's okay. I still find myself signing my name as Allison Smith. Sometimes I'm like, wait, that is not my legal name anymore. So all good, Michelle. Yeah, so I'm a born and raised Texan, grew up about an hour away from Austin. I went to the University of Texas for undergrad, Hook'em Horns, and that is where I met my husband. And after undergrad, I went to Baylor for grad school and just really fell in love with speech pathology. I always thought I wanted to be a school-based SLP, but then kind of discovered my love for those really complex kids and just kind of the mystery of pediatric feeding disorders. I mean, in grad school, they weren't even called PFDs. So just seeing how quickly this area has grown, even in the you know six years that I've been in SLP, it's just so cool to kind of be in that kind of early adopting group. And obviously, we have some queens like Joan Arvidson, who has been doing this way longer than any of us, but kind of- Very godmother status. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But kind of just being in this group and seeing how PFDs are just evolving, I feel like every month something is coming out where it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So yeah, and you know, Austin is where UT is and where we- love to be. And so yeah, I'm working in early intervention in the Austin area now. Nice. Nice. Okay. So for those of you that don't know, um, Allison volunteers. She's been with Dysphagia Outreach Project. She's a mentor with 
the medical SLP collective, and you're also a member of SIG 13. And then talk to us about this advanced degree that you're pursuing. (laughs) Yeah. So I am working on a PhD currently, and it's actually an education leadership and organization because I find that you know, so many people are doing great work out there on the clinical aspect of how can we, you know, provide treatment better. But what I'm more interested in is in how we can provide better education to SLPs so that when they come out of grad school, or even when they take continuing education classes, how can we better prepare them to work with kids with PFDs? Oh, I love that. We had Ed Beist. Do you know Ed Beist? He's an adult clinician. He very handsome man. He's dapper. He always wears a bow tie. I've heard of him. I've never met him, but I do know who you're talking about. Yes. Oh my God. Ed's great. And his little granddaughter is the sweetest little thing. And I love how his Facebook page is all him and his granddaughter. (laughs) (laughs) He does have children and a wife, but like, I just, she's so stinking cute. Oh, Anyways, Ed, we had Ed on back in May for Pediatric Dysphagia Month, and he was talking about like there's this huge breakdown within graduate school that if a graduate program has a peds dysphagia course that it's normally taught by a professor that treated adults that probably has never had any exposure to PFD. And Therefore, like, I mean, you're talking like those are two totally different subject matters, right? And also you're talking about how the textbooks that are selected, a lot of our textbooks, by time research gets published, adopted and embedded in a textbook, there's already like up to a five-year lag time to start with. And it was profound that we're starting in the hole, even in our most optimal circumstances. But he identified this problems and gave us some suggestions for solutions. So thank you, advice and his dapper self. But okay. All right, Erin, do you want to kick us off with some questions, lady? Sure. So I know we're talking about this project that Allison has worked on, but I think it's important to just start talking about really what is EI and the environment that you're working at and then how did working in EI and this environment kind of leads you to this project. Yeah. So, you know, I live in Texas, so I know the specifics to Texas EI. We actually call it ECI. And I know the first time I said that to Michelle, she was like, ECI, what are you talking about? So we are already kind of speaking a different language. I would love for y'all to chime in too about what it looks like in South Carolina. I think y'all call it baby net or something completely different, which I think is just so cute. But I wish it was cute. Right now it's a train wreck, but we got bland. <laughs> But in Texas, we call it ECI, so Early Childhood Intervention, and it is a statewide program that provides services to children birth to three. Each program kind of has its own unique makeup of professionals. I've worked in EI programs where there's, you know, PT, OT, speech, and I've worked in some where we also have a nutritionist and a counselor and social workers, which it's really nice when we can all kind of come to the table and have that interdisciplinary approach. But you know, in some areas of Texas, we don't have that luxury of having all of those professionals. But that's one 
thing that's kind of been cool about this emergence of telehealth is I feel like it's given us more access to professionals that maybe beforehand we wouldn't have had. And so in EI, there's a few different ways to qualify in Texas. You can have a medical diagnosis to qualify. You can have a developmental delay where we do a standardized test and you have to have a certain percentage of delay to qualify, or you can have a qualitative delay. And for speech therapy, that could either be in the areas of articulation or in oral motor and feeding. So those are the three different ways that you can qualify to be in the EI program. Um, How does that differ from South Carolina out of curiosity? Well, my first thought is we don't call it oral motor. If they're going to have a deficit here, it's just a, they can qualify with peds and like feeding and swallowing if it's like an extreme outlier in a deficit. And the pediatrician can make the referrals, but the intake person has to do it. In order to qualify here, it either has to be a set genetic condition or a medical condition that are automatic qualifiers, like an IVH would be an automatic qualifier. Down syndrome, velocardiofacial 22Q11.2 would be an automatic qualifier. Otherwise, it's a deficit and it has to be greater than 33% in one domain or 25% in two or more domains. But okay, so here's a question. And Erin and I have been canoodling on this one. Yeah. How do we identify, I'm just putting this out there because this, I keep coming back to this in my reports when I'm writing, how do we identify if it is a moderate or severe pediatric feeding disorder. Like this to me feels like national dysphagia diet meets IDSI, right? Like we have this new terminology, but how would you identify if it's a moderate pediatric feeding disorder? Because moderate for one child may be, maybe they have okay feeding skills, but they have all these medical conditions that require alternate means of nutrition. Or what if you know for another child they're only taking in five foods but their feeding skill is okay. You see what I'm saying? No, I totally see what you're saying. And that brings up a really good point because for us, whenever I was talking about that qualitative delay where you can qualify in oral motor feeding, if we go that route to bring a child in, we have to show that their feeding problem is significantly impacting their nutrition. Yes. And that can be really complicated because you're with this family. They clearly have a need. They're clearly struggling to feed their child, but how to bridge that to, okay, this is significantly impacting their nutrition. So that is a constant struggle that we have because, you know, if a child is eating five foods and taking a multivitamin, is it significantly impacting their nutrition? I don't know. It makes it a little more challenging. Is it significantly impacting their quality life? Probably, maybe not. It depends on the kid and the family unit, obviously. But yeah, I think that's a really good thought that needs to be, you know, dug into a little bit more to delineate when is it mild, moderate, or severe. Aaron, mm-hmm. sorry, Aaron and I have had this discussion at length lately. Oh, my neurons are firing. Focus, Michelle, focus. Okay, Erin, did you interface with the EI system in Virginia when you were in the NICU? We had a pro, I wouldn't call it a program, but our NICU, and we did it as a speech team, and we also collaborated with OT on this, would 
send the referral to EI if we knew a child was going to qualify, which was really nice. And we would send it to whatever, because it. I know in Virginia, it's different based on what county you're in. So you have to send it to the specific county. And so I know in Virginia, there's a qualifier based on like how many days you've been in the NICU. So if they were in the NICU for a certain number of days and or if they had a specific diagnosis, we went ahead and we would send the referral to EI so that we knew that they had those services, which I thought was great because I hadn't worked at or like heard of another NICU that I knew someone working at that did that. So we that was like an extra project for the SLPs that were in the NICU and the OTs, but it was setting them up for success and reaching out in that way. So I thought that was really cool. It's regional in Virginia. You had to have contracts. Because a lifetime ago, I worked in the public schools and would be on the receiving end. And where we were, the contracts fell through RISP, the Rural Infant Service Program. But okay, so that's just it. IDEA Part C, folks, makes the guidelines for early intervention across the country. Every state interprets it. And those interpretations vary. And in our state, the team lead in South Carolina, the team lead is the designated service coordinator or the early interventionist. But here's the rub. The way it is written in IDEA Part C, the service coordinator or the early interventionist must be a licensed professional, a licensed or certified professional. So what that means is they're looking for either a licensed OTPT SLP or a certified teacher. Okay, early childhood education and education. But in South Carolina, we are a little bit out of compliance as that is not happening. <laughs> so like, oh, baby nut. So do you guys have certified teachers as your service coordinators in Texas? So a lot of them do have their bachelor's degree in early childhood education or early or child development. A few of them are certified teachers, but not necessarily. So, you know, this may be Texas specific, I'm not sure, but we have an early interventionist credentialing process that they have to go through and they get an EIS license. But there, there's a license. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they have to do Ours continuing. have no license and oh. they can have one of, what is it, Michelle, like 15 different degrees, including anthropology, which I can tell you because I almost did medical anthropology, learning about, you know, the cultures in other countries and how they do medicine is not going to help you with teaching a child development. But yeah, so that's where we struggle in our state is that they're not licensed. So when they do things that are encroaching on our scope of practice, they're not even acting outside of their license because they have no license. So, and they can be caught, like they will let parents call them therapists, which I have to then correct them and say that they're not a therapist. So it's, we're working on it. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Wait, I got to toot Erin's horn because she's humble pie over there. Erin is the lead of the South Carolina baby net committee for Skisha. So she's like driving and going, like been leading call for actions and these are the problems and we need to fix it. So like, baby, y'all, this is why we volunteer. So if you're listening and you've got a good hot mad at what's going on in your state and you're like, yes, how do they get away with this? Volunteer. And then we too can change the world. One polite email at a time. (laughs) Okay. I'll behave. (laughs) 
As Aaron's texting saying, behave. Okay. All right. So let's go next question. If those are the kind of, some of the specifics for your state, what did you first identify as, hey, we have a point of system breakdown in getting kids into EI from the NICU? Yeah. So this is so many layers to this, right? (laughs) So first I noticed that SLPs weren't even seeing infants from the NICU. And that was kind of strange to me because like I had experience with infant feeding and had done a lot of continuing education and gotten mentorship in this area. And I wasn't receiving any referrals. And so first kind of identifying like, where are the babies in NICU or where are these NICU babies in EI? And I know this is a problem specifically in multiple programs across Texas because I've spoken to a few different SLPs where they're like, hey, I'm really interested in working with infants. I took a job in EI so that I could work with infants and I'm not getting infants. Like what is happening? And so what I found is kind of historically based off of the people I've talked to, these infants are typically assigned to occupational therapists when they come into the program. I think a lot of times the intake coordinator sees the child's age and just thinks, oh, like they don't need speech therapy. They're a month old. Well, they don't talk at this age. So they get scheduled with the occupational therapist. So really speech is rarely included in EI really before like 18 months from what I've seen and what I've talked to from a few different people in different programs in Texas. So first kind of like identifying that breakdown and really educating my company of like, hey, SLPs have a role here. Like we are the experts in swallowing and we have expertise in this area and we can support families and work alongside OT. This is not, you know, like a territory war that we were starting, but more so just advocating for our worth and our role. And so then I started to talk to the OTs and they're like, oh my goodness, thank God that you, you know, like doing infant feeding. Like I, it's not really my thing. And so once I kind of established myself as that you know, point person for feeding, I would start to get those referrals. But what was still happening is, you know, we'd get the referral for the EI program, the intake coordinator would see, oh, they're a one month old, they should go to OT, because maybe they had an OT in the NICU. And we have 45 days from the time that referral gets to us to make a plan. So 45 days, they're maybe evaluated by OT. The OT puts something like a goal on the plan to get evaluated by a speech therapist for feeding and swallowing. So we're at the 45-day mark. Maybe I can't get to them for two or three weeks. And then I have to get added to the plan. And that can take two or three more weeks. And then from that time that I'm added to the plan, I have 28 days to complete the first visit. And so in a perfect world, if the SLP is the person who gets to evaluate this kid from the get-go, there's still potentially 73 days where we would technically be in compliance, but 73 days before that child has to receive their first visit. If the evaluation is done by an OT or PT at first, it could be 163 days before a therapist sees this child for feeding services. And so when I started thinking about that and just talking to parents of like, oh my gosh, it's taken so long, you know, for you to get here. And of course, then I feel terrible. I was like, there has got to be a better way. 
And a few years back, I was listening to the Swallow Your Pride podcast with Teresa Richards. And Michelle, I think you've actually, I think you were on that podcast as well. But Casey Lewis, who I know we all know and love, was awesome. Yeah, she's great. She was on that podcast and she was talking about this handoff between the NICU SLP and the EI SLP. And I was like, that is so interesting. I've never had that sort of collaboration. And this was in a pre-pandemic world. And so, you know, I had this idea in my head and then COVID happened, which we all know what that was like for healthcare. And but it still kind of simmered in my brain. And I had brought it up to Kristen West, who we also know and love. Yes. She told me, oh, you should meet with Natalie Miller. You know, she worked with her at a hospital and she started a NICU to home program in Seattle. And so I met with Natalie, who was so very helpful and really provided me with a lot of insight on how they started the program and how I can kind of simulate that here in Texas. And that's what we did for, you know, almost six months it took to you know, get everyone trained and competent, or at least a foundational knowledge of infant feeding before really reaching out to hospitals, making those connections, and launching the program. There's a lot of groundwork that has to be laid because the issue with creating a program is you get an influx in referrals, which is fantastic. But if your staff and your company are not prepared for that, then it's not going to be as successful as it could be. And so I was super lucky that my company was really receptive to training all of our SLPs and they had options for observing me with infants and then I could go out and support them with their infant feeding sessions until they felt like they were competent to see these kids on their own and still having my support, you know, via email or phone call or Zoom. So that's kind of an overview of how we got it done. So did the company have EIs on staff or was it just SLPs that you were training? Just SLPs. Yeah, our purpose is EIs do not do anything with feeding unless it's more so like a fine motor thing, like utensil use or maybe some very like low level like diet expansion. That's kind of the scope that they have. But anytime it comes with infant feeding or dysphagia, that's when one of the therapists will address that. So I think we might have a slightly different model in Texas. I know some states do that kind of point person model where like the EI delivers most of the services and the therapist is more of a consultative. Whereas in Texas, it's really up to the therapist to determine how the services are delineated. So like whenever I have a NICU grad, I am seeing them, you know, once or twice a week, depending on their needs. And the EI is either on the plan or they might not be on the plan at all. I know in Kansas, my girlfriend, Katie from Kansas, (laughs) I think that's great, Katie from Kansas, and she spells Katie with the K. I love alliteration. It's wonderful. The way that they have it running there is they have a point person, but the point person is one of the allied health teams, OTPT or speech. 
And so they go in and do the weekly caregiver coaching and service delivery, but they move it around according to the child's needs. Like if the child's feeding is taking priority, then the SLP or the OT would go in and focus on that for however many weeks. And then they would swap it out to, you know, say they're struggling with learning to walk or rolling over, then, you know, they would trade off to like OT or PT. So I just wanted clarification. How long did it take for your colleagues to feel like they were comfortable, like really comfortable? Yeah. So a handful of them had had feeding experience prior to really initiating this program. So what I did was I sent out like a survey beforehand was like, First of all, who is even interested in doing this? Who's interested in additional training? Because one thing that I've learned over the years is if someone is forced to do something, we're not going to do it to the best of our ability. So I didn't want someone to have to take on these complex kids if they didn't want to, because I don't think that's fair to the clinician or the family. And so we had a handful of SLPs that were like, yes, I want to do this. I'm interested. And we had been doing continuing education and for PFDs, generally speaking, for a couple of years at this point. So we had a pretty strong foundation. And most of them were seeing feeding kids, just not this infant population because we didn't have the infant population. And so my company specifically used the Sophie course by Aaron Ross, who I think you also have had on your podcast before. Dr. Ross, I should say. So we did that course all together. And I would say really depending on the person, if they, you know, reached out, they did the observations, they had me come and mentor them, we did them together, etc. It took about three to six months for them to feel like, okay, I've got this. Again, I was still providing support, even if they were like signed off on taking these kids. And we had a few, it wasn't just me that was able to provide support. We kind of had a, a point person in each little pocket. We covered six counties in Texas. So obviously I can't be everywhere at once. So y'all counties are huge. That's for sure. So yeah, we had a point person, at least in the North and the South counties to provide that support for staff if needed. So how did y'all start with the NICU letting them know? Yeah. So over the years, before I created this program, I had been working at this company for about two years. And so over that time, I had been getting feeding kids. And so I was reaching out to the SLPs at the hospital. In a pre-pandemic world, I would physically go and attend the modified swallow studies so that they could actually see who the person was that was treating this child and have that collaboration. Another thing I started doing specifically during COVID was attending some of the kids' medical appointments if they were over Zoom. So then the medical team got to know me as well. So kind of just building that relationship and that level of trust, because I feel like that's something with EI specifically that I've seen is if the hospital knows that there is maybe a private therapist or a home health company that you know promotes themselves as providing feeding and swallowing, they send them to the home health company rather than EI. Because again, historically, EI just hasn't been maybe known for providing feeding services or maybe at the intensity or frequency that the medical staff thinks the child needs. 
And so by, you know, meeting with them, I also did a few lunch and learns with the hospital so that they could know exactly what we do. And that was really beneficial because we were able to dispel a few myths that they had thought about EI. Oh, you mean like that we just play with the babies? Okay. Uh-huh. I'll be quiet now. Or just rub their faces to wake them up yep. again. Well, uh-huh. one of the things was like, oh, you know, we haven't sent these medically complex kids to you guys because we thought it was the early interventionist who did all the therapy and the therapists weren't involved. And I should clarify here that Early interventionists are highly trained, highly educated individuals, but it is different than being a therapist. You know, we have a specific skill set and training that EIs just don't get. So just kind of those myth busters we had to kind of go through and just remind them, yes, the therapist is there. It will be me actually doing the feeding and swallowing therapy. So I think just building that level of trust, then they were like, okay, I feel confident in sending this kid to this person or to this company now because now I know what to expect and what I should tell the family to expect. And can they send referrals to specific companies or is it like it has to go through this system through ECI and then ECI decides where those referrals get sent? Yeah. So in Texas, we have a website where you type in the zip code where the child lives and it tells you which program covers that area. So our state is kind of broken up into chunks and yeah, each company or system, it's very different, has a contract from the state of Texas and they provide services to a predetermined area. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it just speaks to, to how we have our perspective and our perception, but we don't even know what someone else's perception is. And to, you would assume that the therapist in the hospital knew that EI therapists could do feeding and you would assume that they understood how the EI system works, but to realize that they might not. And I think about this a lot with our physicians, like you might think, okay, well, they already know all of these things. And then you go in and have the conversation with them about like what feeding therapy looks like and what the signs of a pediatric feeding disorder are and why it's important to send a referral as early as they possibly can. And then you have the conversation, you realize there are so many things that like they don't know. So even just going and taking the time to sit down and show your face and express that can completely change the trajectory of a project or like how things come in or how you can help in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that was honestly the biggest game changer and something that people can do even if they are not like their staff isn't in a place at this moment to, you know, have a big influx of referrals or, you know, the company doesn't have the capacity for additional referrals, even just setting that groundwork of like, hey, like, I'm Allison, this is what I like to do. This is how I can help these kids. You know, let's stay in touch. So then whenever you do get to the point where your company can expand to a program like this, or, you know, train additional therapists, they already know you and trust you. Mm -hmm. And I have a, this is like kind of a question that I've been lingering on, but also wonder your perspective, because if you were kind of the point person um, training these therapists, did you have any sort of measurements or criteria for when a therapist was competent to see these patients? How did you assess that? Because I think I struggle sometimes being that lead point person for feeding because I've created competencies, which seems to help not just me, 
but also other therapists say, okay, I've, I've completed these competencies. I know that I'm able to do this, but I know that that isn't always applicable. And then when you have someone who already does feeding, like how do you kind of, what was your company's model in regards to kind of deciding that? Yeah, I feel like that's a really tricky one because I do feel like as SLPs, we're responsible for our own competency. And so what we did was we had everyone complete the SOFI course just to have that like textbook knowledge foundation. And then we kind of had a recommended plan that consisted of some various readings. We had 10 observations with me and then me observing them 10 times. And then kind of... And they paid you for all that? I'm sorry, because sometimes I, I hear of people being utilized as mentors, but they're not compensated appropriately for their time during like those one-to-one intensive trainings in-house. Yeah. So they did compensate me for my time in the sense that I had less productivity. So rather than seeing 20 hours of kids a week, I had to see 14 so that I was able to provide that level of support for my colleagues. Yes, you would have been burnt out otherwise. There's no way. (laughs) So yeah, we, you know, they observed me 10 times. And it was their responsibility to reach out and schedule those observations. And of course, sometimes like, I can only control my caseload so much It just depends on which kid is in my area and if they're an infant or not. And then I observed them 10 times. And then after that kind of determining okay, where are our gaps in knowledge? Where do you feel like you need more support? Is there a certain resource we can send you? Um, So we didn't have a specific like kind of cookie cutter way of looking at competency. I do really like the dysphagia competency verification tool released by ASHA. I think that was like in 2017, I believe. I might have the year wrong on that, but that's a really good tool. So yeah, we didn't have super specifics, Aaron. So I can't... I'm not sure. No, it's good to think about that aspect. And to be fair, I have been training a lot of therapists who have no feeding experience. So that's a little bit of a different ballgame, but it is always nice to hear and just get kind of more information on how everybody else is doing that. Because I think, I mean, every person I talk to is like, we need more feeding therapists. Like there's just not enough. There's not enough of any therapist right now, but I think specifically feeding and swallowing, it's tough sometimes. So no, that that was great. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like it is hard, especially with infants, to have kind of a blanket competency because each one is so different. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes you can have all the book knowledge and know all the signs, all the symptoms, all the flow rates, all the thickeners. And then you actually see the baby and it's like, Oh, all that just went out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Things change so quickly. So you have to be so comfortable. And I think there are a lot of things that just in general, you have to be comfortable with change. You have to be comfortable with kind of using critical knowledge and like breaking things down. And so just having support and code switching and just having support from someone to be able to think through that, I think is the most important thing because I learn through every patient and every experience. And I'm definitely a much better therapist now than I was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. But you also have to allow people to go through those growing pains as long as the patient is safe and kind of navigate that. So there's also, you know, letting people learn through their own experiences. Absolutely. For sure. 
And, you know, I will say I covered our more rural counties. And so if we did get an infant referred to us in an area where the SLP was not competent, we could refer to a private therapist that was. So that's one thing that I was, you know, grateful for how we were kind of set up that we were never in a position where a kid would be unsafe. We had kind of fail safes ready to go. That's lovely. I just, it's hard. I mean, Erin has started taking students. I don't know. Have you served as a clinical supervisor yet? I have for a CF. Yes. Oh, I haven't. I have attempted twice to serve as a CF supervisor. One of them, I got a third of the way through and then went on emergency bed rest with Bear. And then the other one, she took a job and moved to Texas. So I missed that one. But I have a CF now, but she was my student. So she's already, I mean, I trained her for 15 weeks. So I'm. As we see you and Riley's awesome. So like, but like it's. This is hard. Like it is hard to mentor supervision, whether it be a graduate student, a CF, or a fully seed colleague, and hold those conversations of you're rocking it here, but we have room for improvement here. And kind critiques and crucial conversations, that means that on this side, you have to fully grasp how that individual's learning style is and what is their love language. Because when you're mentoring someone, to me, that's an act of love. Like you're filling their cup so that they can go out and do something more and more for the community, more for these patients. And great, we're we're serving the least of these. So like on top of reading the ASHA competencies and doing all of that, I going to throw in the read the five love languages, because I really think that that's crucial for all of us. And they have a kid one. It's called the five love languages for kids. or I don't know, something like that, but it's really cool to watch how our kids give and receive. I'm going on a squirrel here. It's a big one, but if you're a mom or a dad or a caregiver, you should be reading that book. <gasps> we should get it for baby Z. Okay. Squirrel is done. You did a good I'm job done. there. Yeah, in their last podcast, Michelle said the name of my friend's baby, which she's not sharing with the world. So we had and to that's edit supposed that out. to share, but like I'm so in. excited. <laughs> you can say it in the real world, just not when thousands of people are going to listen, Michelle. I know, but he's such a fat, perfect baby. It's he's just like baby. he's a perfect. Yeah, also my best yeah. friend just had a baby, like my very Aww. best friend. So we're yes, very excited. And he honestly, yeah. I know like not all babies are cute, but like he really is the most beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> my best friend just found out the gender of her baby yesterday. And I'm actually at her house right now recording this because I had to bring baby clothes. And she's like, you're, she probably thinks I'm nuts, honestly, but I'm just so excited. I'm an only child. So like I was never really around like babies that I could spoil. And so I'm like, this is my opportunity. Auntie Allie at your service here. Yep. <laughs> See, I love this stage. We're so far past that right now. I swear Bear came downstairs the other day. He goes, mom, my tally whacker is sticking to my balls. And I'm like, son, I have no idea what to do with this information. And I was like, mommy doesn't have those. Go talk to your father. But like, so cherish these sweet, innocent little boy moments, because eventually you're going to be talking about sweaty bits and pieces that you don't want to discuss. <laughs> so like, yeah. Everybody's like, and they're adults. They're adults with the podcast. Okay. So here we go. Let's go back to it. What were your biggest barriers? 
Yeah. So I think kind of the ones that we already touched on. So one that I hear from other SLPs that I've connected with in Texas is needing support from their company. So a lot of times, like a lot of EI companies, I think maybe just therapy places in general are just understaffed right now. And they don't have the capacity to invest time and money into training them because they need these people seeing kids. So I think that can be a really big barrier for some like you have this great idea, but your company also has to be on board for it to happen. And then SLP education and competency, which we've already touched on, and then the hospital buy-in for sure. So after kind of establishing this groundwork with the NICUs and the hospital system, and once my company was on board, we trained everyone at least to a point where we felt comfortable like, okay, now we need to start getting kids so we can continue this mentorship. I contacted the NICUs and we made up a little flyer and we really had to reorganize how we took in these referrals. So it was a lot of education on our end and on the back end in terms of like the intake coordinator realizing like, oh, this is a NICU grad. I see that they have a dysphagia diagnosis. That means they need to be scheduled with a speech pathologist. And so what we did is we wanted to be mindful that creating this program wouldn't just move these kids to the top of the list and knock someone else down the list because we didn't feel like that was fair at all. So what we did was when these infants got referred to us, and it was actually pretty cool because after establishing these relationships with the NICU, they would start emailing me and saying, hey, in two or three days, we're going to discharge a kid that's in your area. I just want you to know. So we kind of had a heads up that these kids were coming our way before they were even discharged, which was awesome. And so then we were able to kind of special schedule an evaluation slot for this, you know, this infant and the family. And our goal was to have them receiving their first therapy service within 14 days of coming home. So ideally, you know, maybe they would come home on a Monday We would evaluate them on Thursday, and then we would be doing therapy the next week rather than waiting that 73 days or 160 days, whatever it may be. So I feel like education was the biggest barrier on so many different levels, like education for the therapist, education for the hospital, and education internally in our company for the support staff. Mm. I feel like I'm just dealing with the bigger battles right now, just making sure we're getting medical records for the patients that we're treating and how to streamline that. Oh, so that was actually another thing that was on our flyer. So what we did was like, if you are wanting this infant to be seen within 14 days, whenever you send the referral, I wish I had the list in front of me, but we had a list of the medical records that we wanted. So we wanted their NICU discharge summary, their last like two or three therapy notes and any instrumentals that they had had done. And so whenever we got the referral, we had all of the medical information before we even saw the kid. So that was a huge game changer as well because we were able to be prepared. And this was also a really good screener for is the therapist in this area prepared for this? And if not, how can we support this family? And do we need to make a change? So then it's not happening like, oh, gosh, we're in the middle of the evaluation and I'm realizing I'm not competent. 
So that was a support that we had built in that I think was a pretty big game changer because it eliminated any surprises, which when you're starting with a new frontier, especially with PFDs and infant feeding, it can be kind of overwhelming and nerve wracking, at least for me and honestly still is sometimes years later. I mean, sometimes I get a kiddo and I'm like, oh, I have never heard of this disorder. Like what? Like, I mean, or they get a new medication and I'm like, I need to read about this medication. But to me that honestly, on the flip side of that, I get really concerned when people are super confident in all aspects of treating pediatric feeding disorders, because if you've seen one child with PFD, then you've seen one child with PFD. How they got there in their journey is unique to them, whether it be sudden onset or four years later. So yeah. Aaron, thoughts, ma'am? I don't know. It makes me overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) I literally heard you sigh and (laughs) breathe. (laughs) I'm like, we have a long way to go to get to this point. So we'll get there. But I mean, question though, Allison, I don't, so where, I don't know if it's, I think it's going around the problem, but if we have a child that has like South Carolina Medicaid, then they don't have to go through the early intervention system. I'll just get the referral from the physician. And so like when I end up, most of the time I end up getting the kids that need services either because the SLP at the hospital referred to me because they saw them in the NICU or they saw them in the PICU, or I get a lot of referrals from the physician, which sometimes pisses off the EI because they they want it. yes but if they're medicaid then we can bill medicaid we don't have to necessarily bill through the baby net system so i don't think that's not necessarily helping what you have created and what we hope to eventually have going here in south carolina once we figure out all the other logistics but are does it have to go through eci or do you have any patients that you see that are straight referrals from the physician that aren't in their in that system I think I'm actually a little confused on what exactly you're asking. I wonder if we just have very different, like fundamentally different. They might be very different. Oh, it's because I'm like, hmm, so it's not computing. So in South Carolina, you can get services for a child for birth to three, either within the framework of early intervention, baby net. But because there are some families elect not to receive services within the framework of BabyNet, like receiving an IFSP and just do direct service with OTPT or speech because the systems... And we can be involved in both. Like my clinic is a BabyNet provider, but also provides private services through insurance. So maybe that's the... Yeah. Yes. Okay. I feel like we just broke you, Allison. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No, this is South Carolina needs help. <laughs> fascinating. And so I do think there are a few companies in Texas that do both. Like they do private. We kind of separate them out as private therapy versus EI therapy. And so maybe that's the distinction I need to make in my brain here. And so we do have a couple of companies that provide both, but like the company I work for, we just provide EI therapy. So any child that's coming to us and we get referrals directly from the physician, it can be from the parent, it could be from the daycare provider, it could be from anyone. And we also have it where both the EI SLP and a private SLP could be seeing a child. 
So I don't know if that's different. So wait, if they're doing that, are they billing the same CPT codes or are they treating different things? So it gets tricky and we might want to fact check all of this because it changes. <laughs> I swear one day I'm told one thing and then the next day it's like, oh, just kidding. But I believe the current state of affairs as of August, what day is it? 12th, 2022 in Texas, an EISLP and a private SLP can bill the same CPT code. I believe it cannot be on the same day and the frequency has to be medically justified. So if a private SLP is seeing a kid two or three times a week, I maybe cannot justify also seeing this kid. However, if we feel like there is no generalization of skill from the clinic environment to the home environment, and that's how I can make my medical justification, we can do that. Okay. So again, now I broke your brain. I think I broke my own too, honestly. No, I'm just giggling because we're at my mom's house and I forgot they have a garage door opener. So the garage door opener went off in the background. So it's like, which you can't hear is the floor is shaking and there's that factor, but we're all going to make it. Eventually we'll be done. In South Carolina, you can have an early intervention SLP and you can have a private SLP. And in some circumstances, they can, when they transition to the public schools, you can have a private SLP as well as a school-based clinician, Mm -hmm. right? We cannot build on the same day. But my catch is from a personal perspective, I have found that if we're doing the same things, our different therapeutic approaches sometimes can overwhelm the caregiver. Yes. And so if that's the situation, then my recommendation is make sure that everybody is properly communicating after signed consent to release information about like, this is the therapeutic goal that we're working on. This is how we're facilitating it through caregiver coaching. What are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And then that eliminates the barrier of the caregiver feeling overwhelmed or underwhelmed and setting the child up for success. So yeah, absolutely. Communication is a hundred percent key. And I will say like, I rarely encountered this specific situation whenever I worked in rural counties because there were no private SLPs out there. It was just EI, which I think is why I might have a slightly different perspective on some things too, because there wasn't these endless options for parents or even for physicians to refer to. It was like, oh, you're zero to three, you're going to go to EI because, you know, unfortunately there's nothing else. So, but I also think that made us really good EI therapists because, we had to be on top of our game and we had to treat any kid that walked in the door that gave us a really good breadth of knowledge. Okay. I just looked at the time and we all could literally talk for from ever. If somebody's listening and they're like, how do I replicate this? Where do I start? What were the growing pains that you learned from this? Yeah, I think... The biggest one is like putting yourself out there, which sounds really cheesy, but for me, it can be really intimidating to call a doctor or to show up to a modified and interact with the hospital SLP. I feel like sometimes we put hospital SLPs like on a pedestal, like they're the 
you know, gold standard of medical SLPs and they're fantastic, but like EI therapists and home health and private, like we have our unique skill set too, and we bring a unique perspective to the table. And so I think the biggest thing and hardest thing that I did was reaching out to them, asking them questions, being vulnerable about what I do know and what I don't know. And I think by doing that, they're like, okay, like she is putting in the effort. She wants to learn. She wants to do best for this kid. So I think if anything, that's where anyone can start. Even if it's just, hey, I'm interested in feeding. Can I come observe you? Can I learn more? Do you have any resources for me? I think that can really open the door for that relationship. When you started talking about the medical SLP being on the pedestal, but home health has merit and muchness, all I can think of is the amount of times I have bravely entered homes after tractor run-ins, swarms of crickets, because that's like a legit thing in South Carolina in the rural parts. And we go in the door and we're flying blind with next to no medical records and like having just fought for our life. It's like, that's home health SLPs, man. I really think that we might be some of the hardest breed of SLPs out there. You got to be hardy. Erin, thoughts, ma'am? No, I think it's like Allison said, it's, I do feel like sometimes it can be very nerve wracking. I mean, I still get nervous when I talk to some, some of the, I was telling Michelle the other day, I was like, I have to call one of the girls over at MUSC and I like love them, but I just hope that they don't think I'm doing something wrong. Like I hope that the, <laughs> I'm doing okay <laughs> with this kid before they go to see them. And then you realize like, but it is also important to realize like it is very different skill set. Michelle and I always say like the SLPs that work at the hospital just see more kids in a shorter period of time, but they're not seeing them go through all of these different stages like we're seeing them go through. And they're also not spending as much time with the family as we are, like our coaching skills and navigating counseling parents and all the other ins and outs are just different. So to know your strengths and know your role and know the value that you bring is really, really important when you go into those conversations and not to feel insecure about the things that aren't your role. And that's why we have all these SLPs in different settings to fill those voids. Yeah. Erin, your comment about like inpatient or hospital SLP is kind of seeing a lot of kids in a short period of time reminded me of a funny anecdote. I was interviewing for a PRN acute care position. And one of the questions in my interview was like, walk me through a feeding or dysphagia case that you've had, you know, from evaluation to discharge. And I'm like, well, how much time do we have? Right, right. (laughs) Like, I cannot like, you know, do this in 30 seconds and wrap it up in a little bow. Like there's so many intricacies and changes and ups and downs and calls. And so, yeah, I feel like they're Do you know how much work I put in to get that child discharged? Like I can't just tell you that in five minutes. Right, exactly. So it just made me chuckle when you said that. But y'all just hit on it. We get to be there for the journey. We may not get the acute moment, But we get to walk alongside these families and these kids for the long haul. And that is amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Allison, I'm so freaking proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm trying not to cry. And I know how proud Kristen is of you. So well done. Thank you, guys. That means a lot. You know, I like view y'all as role models and really thankful for y'all's support over the years. Yeah. And I think it's so cool how you've like, 
shifted and not shifted to find something that like you're going to be able to bring a very, very different perspective and make changes in a very different way because of this new path. And I'm like really, really excited for you. This is a cool degree. This is a very cool degree. It will be awesome to see you carry it on, like how that doctorate is going to influence future generations of clinicians. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be good. Okay. Yes, we got in our feels that happened. But okay. Well, folks, it is beginning of the school year. So I'm just going to end with an ode to Kristen West. By now, most of our little ones that have left early intervention are starting school at three or whatever age they're at. And we have to remember PFD doesn't stop there. PFD continues to follow them into all settings. So I know that South Carolina has rolled out the SLP companion guide for evaluation and treatment of pediatric feeding swallowings in public schools. I have it on really good authority that some of the, Allison, what is it? Tishka folks? <laughs> Tisha. Tisha, Tisha. Michelle. She's finding an X to be in there. <laughs> I. It looks like it should be. Okay. Tisha folks. <laughs> Sorry, Tisha, but I know a good authority that some of the Tisha folks have copies of it and are working to bring it to the schools. But to quote Kristen, PFD doesn't stop at the schools. So just remember, we're talking today about NICU to EI, but we got to carry it forward there too. So if you're able to make it to ASHA in New Orleans, I do believe Kristen's presenting. Also, Dr. Power de Fleur, I believe, is presenting on it. So check them out. Go get your cup filled by one of our mentors and let's keep it on. So also, you know, we love it when you join us on First Bite Podcast on Instagram and hit us up with five-star reviews. I still feel vomitous saying that, but less vomitous. So there it is. Okay. Ladies, thank you. Allison, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Bye. Feeding Matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey! 
Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.